welcome back to the Graduate Guide. I'm here with Dom and Phil of EZA. Guys, if you could just uh, start off by explaining what EZA is exactly. Yeah, so a way to think about us. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having us on, Pete. Um, second of all, EZA is basically Duolingo, but for emerging tech. So blockchain um, is like the big focus that we have, Web3, and it allows people just via the app to learn about anything that they want to learn about in that space, just very easily at the push of a couple of buttons. Yeah, and let's take it back to pre-anything EZA. You're, you're both brothers, and you're both going down different routes, and then when was it re you realized that the problem that EZA is trying to solve needed solving? Well, we've been on a, I'd say a journey with EZA. So when we initially launched it, this was, so we moved back from New York in end of 2019, and this was around mid-2020 when we really launched it. And it was initially a knowledge marketplace. So essentially a way that people could learn about different topics from people who were just a couple of steps ahead of them. So sort of like peer-to-peer -peer mentorship, um, really focused around STEM. So like math, science, computer science. Um, and it eventually blossomed into this thing where we had so many people who were asking questions. Very quickly became clear that it was becoming difficult to scale. Like people absolutely loved it. They raved about it. We need to find a way to reach beyond just you know, the tens of thousands of users that we had to grow into the hundreds of thousands and eventually millions. So that was where we eventually blossomed into being this more content-based side. So leaning into more of the Duolingo side in a similar way to how like you could have a language tutor, right? Uh, and so EZA was very much more like that in terms of helping for STEM subjects. But then we're like, okay, what if we actually took our leaf out of Duolingo's book and instead of being like a language tutor one-on-one -on -one with a real human, what if you could actually do it in a more scalable way, which is like, actually having that content there. And that's what became EZA today. So you say it's, uh, it's aimed at people in the STEM uh, area. And obviously, one thing that your company has progressed into is uh, these hackathons, something that I helped you guys out with all of them. It was a very crazy and eye-opening experience uh, with some very talented developers there. Why did you think that, you know, that was the next step to, I mean, it's kind of web-free, Bitcoin, hackathon, which are all words that I don't know that well, and nor probably does the audience. So if you, if you could explain exactly like what the, the purpose is behind the events and you know, what people would get out of it coming to them. Yeah, definitely. So obviously, you know, the EZA community lives in the EZA app, um, in which we have a community of over 750,000 developers um, all across the world, mostly in the US and in the UK. Um, but a big part of what we want to do as well is get those developers actually building out long-lasting projects in different Web3 and blockchain ecosystems. So when we look at the recent hackathon that we worked together on, um, the Stacks hackathon, which was a Bitcoin hackathon um, at the heart of London, um, we really set out to encourage people to um, come in person and actually build out their ideas over the course of a weekend. Um, so we give people two days basically to work on an idea that they've built using the knowledge that they've acquired through our app. Um, and so that's a really great opportunity for people to build an idea, um, seek funding as well. Um, we have VCs often at these events. We have different people from the ecosystem there as well to provide grants for them to continue to take their ideas to the next level. Um, so the IRL events are a really great way for people to pitch their ideas, um, start building their ideas, and actually use it as a springboard of which they can actually take their projects long term. Yeah, one interesting thing I noticed when I was there is that there were people that were attending that actually knew like nothing about what they were coming to. And it was like a really good education tool as well for, for Web3. So yeah. for people that didn't attend the event, how would you try and explain and break down Web3 into something you know maybe digestible for your average person? 
I think maybe the easiest way to explain what a hackathon actually is is basically just, it's a basically a two-day event. I think the word hackathon is maybe a little bit scary for people. It's like, you know, you said this earlier when we were preparing, it was like, you know, you're actually hacking into something, right? <laughs> people aren't hacking into anything and they're just building a project. So it's hacking in the sense of just putting something together very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily have to be totally coding related. So it's not like people like wearing these hoodies sitting in a dark room for two days, like hacking into government systems. It's people putting together their ideas into a cool project. And they're also like hacking together presentations. They are putting together like a, lo a lot of code, of course, but also their business ideas, trying to get their first users even sometimes, hacking social media, it's like growth hacking, right? So there's so much more to it. I mean, in a nutshell, it's basically just coming together with friends and building something that you think you want to build uh, in a very short period of time. Yeah, it's funny when I was explaining what you guys did to my producer, she thought I was, say, I was saying hacking phones or what they did. <laughs> they hack phones. I was like, yeah. no, just to clarify, yeah, it's it's not that, but you know, you can find out in the episode kind of thing. But um, yeah, if we, if we sort of um, go back to your career in itself, you both went to Cambridge, you both had, uh, oh no, you went to Cambridge, yeah. and we had great corporate careers lined up. And then it's a big you know, jump where you've got all this, you know, you've got a wage, you've got uh, expectations, and you know, you know what you're doing in this corporate career, and then you've decided to completely scrap that and, and go ahead with your own startup. Talk me through that decision as, as brothers as well. Like, what were the, the, the reasons you would do it, why you wouldn't, and what did you have to overcome? Yeah, I, think I can start off with mine and then I guess yeah. Tom can chip in with his story. Um, they're very similar. So we both went to school together with brothers, grew up together. Um, I guess the fork in the path was sort of around university. Um, so I went off to, to Cambridge um, and then read law there. Um, and so that was when I, I stayed in the UK. Dom obviously went over to the US, as I'm sure he'll talk about in a second. Um, but I'd say, actually, interestingly enough for us, it wasn't maybe as big of a leap as maybe it looks like. So on the outside, it looks like uh, you know, went to Cambridge, then went and um, became an attorney in New York, and then took the plunge into actually, you know, starting ECA and just like going, you know, full in, um, dropping basically the corporate life, as you just said, and then coming into starting a startup. In reality, you know, the whole journey started way, way back, um, very early on in school even, just starting to code when I was 13 years old, then first got into mining Bitcoin in about 2013, so this was like 10 years ago. Um, and then, you know, throughout that, we're just launching loads and loads of cool products, trying to get people using them, trying to get people to, like, use a version of Facebook that I originally created, um, which was just, like, connecting people at school, um, so, like, more of a school-based social network. Then, you know, building off that, iterating. At university, we both launched uh, two marketplace startups. Um, and then after that, then we decided, okay, let's finish this off. You know, I, I had to sort of, you know, just finish that journey as a lawyer, actually get qualified, um, and then, you know, basically check off that box uh, and then came and found EZA afterwards. So it was really more of a progression. I sort of always knew that, or we always knew that we wanted to come back to it. And I think it's probably you know, a similar story to Dom as well. Yeah, definitely. So I um, went after um, doing my high school education in the UK, went to the US uh, to the University of Pennsylvania, where I studied finance at Wharton um, as an undergrad. And then um, briefly after, um, worked at Blackstone in New York. So, you know, similar to Phil, uh, very corporate um, traditional path. Um, but actually, shortly after working at Blackstone, was hired by Travis Kalanick, um, the former CEO and founder of Uber, um, to actually help him set up his new startup, Cloud Kitchens. Um, so I was one of the first hires there um, and really sort of, you know, saw how a startup works from the inside out. 
um, and really sort of had a first eye or first hand view into what it's like to start a company from scratch uh, with obviously, you know, a really um, well known and notable founder. Um, and that's really sort of, you know, when I thought, okay, this is something exciting that we could actually do, um, you know, Philip myself. Um, and so, you know, obviously we had this experience with some other startups in the past, founding them, launching them, bringing them to the market. Uh, but we actually thought, okay, now is the time really to actually do this full time. Um, now that, you know, we are uh, full time humans, we've, you know, obviously um, have full time jobs. Uh, it's time I've to always be a full time human. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, time for the revelation. <laughs> It's time to leave that behind and then, um, and then yeah, and then go ahead and, and start our own company. So I think that's really, um, you know, how it all happened um, for me. And, and obviously, you know, combining that past experience really led us down this path, um, which is, uh, yeah, so far, you know, the last couple of years been uh, really exciting and, yeah, sort of, you know, growing faster than we could have ever imagined. Yeah, one thing that stands out to me there is like that awareness that you had from a young age of like just alternative routes to what you're actually pursuing in education. And I feel like it's it's something that is really like lacking in universities, that tradition, like, you know, even that exposure, you know, to have the awareness of other routes you can take. I mean, how did you, you, you say, oh, I just started coding when I was 13, or, you know, I just got you know invited to the startup with the Uber, ex-Uber founder. How do you actually like go about getting into those positions where you could get those positions or you know start coding or whatever it is i think well don has a story about how he got tapped by uh by cloud kitchens but uh, and travis but i guess for me with coding it was just like i've always take the, taken this perspective that you just need to start doing it and not think about it too much i think richard branson has this amazing saying which is like screw it just do it right um and i think that that mantra is something that everybody needs to have a bit more of as well Someone who take ourselves a little bit too seriously. It's like coding is so difficult. How am I going to learn? Even for somebody who's like, you know, in their late teens or early twenties, they're like, oh, what about all those people who started it way, ago, way like ages ago? Um, and I've always just taken the perspective that you just need to do it. Uh, and if you think about it too much, yes, it's going to be too difficult. Like you know, even starting something as small as um, just setting like setting up like an Instagram page, for example, or setting up a website for your business, it just seems like this gargantuan task. And it's like. How am I ever going to get people to visit it? How am I going to get people to follow me on Instagram? All of this stuff, it just seems so overwhelming. Whereas in reality, you just need to set something up and who knows what will happen. Like, you know, chances are that it might, it probably might fail, but you'll have learned so much. And the next time, there's always next time, right? And so we're just catching up actually with a, another team that came out of uh, EZA um, that raised from A16Z and they're now building out their project. They are just students, so they dropped out of Harvard. They're still on campus, so they get the, like, you know, the full experience, but it's sort of like they've taken that approach as well. It's like, you know, I'm at university. Uh, I might as well just start something, build something cool. And who knows what will happen? Oh, I've learned a huge amount. They've raised from, you know, some of the best venture capitalists in the world as well. Um, and who knows? They could build it into, you know, the next Facebook or the next Google. Um, and they will be like, you know, none the poorer for having actually tried. And yeah, I mean, Don probably has a story about Travis. Yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, uh, not as um, interesting, I guess, as you may think. Um, but basically, I was, you know, working one day, and I got a LinkedIn message um, from one of Travis's team, um, who basically, you know, were helping him set this whole new team up for Cloud Kitchens. Uh, and they were inviting me to this event, um, where he was basically going from city to city, um, to kind of find people to join him on this quest. Um, so I decided to go uh, on a Friday evening. 
um, to one of the events um, downtown New York and yeah, met Travis, uh, listened to his vision, was really inspired and we kind of just, you know, uh, took things from there. So yeah, it was uh, a LinkedIn message, I guess, that resulted in that. So make sure your LinkedIn profile is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, you, you mentioned uh, Richard Branson there. Um, and I think one thing that I always think with him, which is interesting, is he kind of pioneered in a way, like having your company associated with the person itself, yeah. like being the face of the brand. And I think with your content, you are very much the face of the brand as well. You don't hide behind the screen. Like yeah. your front and center of the Instagram videos and everything like that. Why do you think that's an important thing to be doing it for like companies in general nowadays, but certainly yours as well? That's a great question. It's one I think about a lot, actually. I think that what we've seen people move towards is, first of all, just in terms of growth, right? I think this is really just a progression that's happened maybe over the past few decades. Today, in order to build a company or a business, you need to have a very, very strong social media presence. Um, and so my perspective on it is essentially, you know, you have these Instagram, these TikTok pages, these Facebook pages. I mean, maybe people don't really use Facebook too much anymore, but all these different pages, right, or accounts. And if you want to grow on those accounts in order to grow your business as well, you cannot be just like a plain old brand posting up like company updates um, or, you know, this new thing just launched. People don't have any affinity to that and they won't follow you, right? So I think it's very, very hard to build a following if you don't have a personal brand behind it as well. So, yeah, you talk about Richard Branson. They've done it really well. I mean, looking more recently as well, um, you know, you've got the whole Kardashian lineage who have built this whole, these whole lines of businesses around their brands, like, you know, Kylie's lips, that sort of thing. Even if you're not building cosmetics, um, people just want to follow or see the story behind what's being created. And I think maybe one of the one of the companies that's been able to steer through all of this and through all these different decades is actually Apple, right? And so there was obviously a big visionary, Steve Jobs, but they've still managed to keep a story, right? And so a story behind not just the founder, but also behind why you should buy, for example, the latest iPhone or the Mac. And so it's classic, like, you know, in a similar way to Nike as well. If, even if they don't necessarily focus on the founder or if you're, you know, for anybody who's listening and doesn't necessarily want to be the face of the brand, at least having a story behind why it was created. Like the Mac, you use it because you want to improve yourself, right? You want to gain access to becoming, you know, a, great, a better musician or a better artist or a better designer. And the Mac enables you to do that. And so sort of projecting that vision, I think it's very easy to do that or much easier to do it with a personal brand and as the face behind it, which is very difficult to do it if you're just like a logo that people see. Do you think it, it matters which one comes first, the personal brand or the actual product? Because, you know, you see it happening both ways, right? People make a personal brand, people like become attached to that person and then anything that they set up already has that like interest or, you know, with, with you guys, uh, you know, with your experience in, in coding and, and whatever, like it seemed like the product was there already. So it was just a matter of then going up to build a personal brand. Like, so yeah, do you, do you think it's important personally? Yeah, I think it definitely helps to have the personal brand before you launch the product. Because, um, you know, like Phil was saying, people resonate with a person much more than a brand. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of times you'll see influencers who first build up their own personal image and then they launch products based off that. Um, so, yeah, whether it's, you know, in the fitness space or in the education space, um, it's really important, I think, across all spheres to have the personal brand. And then obviously, once you build up that community, they start to trust you. And then you also obviously have a good distribution channel for getting that product into people's hands, which is really important because, yeah, if you just have a great product and no one knows about it, as you know, there's not much, um, much point in that. One thing I'm like 
becoming increasingly interesting uh, interested in as I you know continue doing the graduate guide and you know find out what I'm really passionate about is the concept of how co-founders like, interact and, and make sure like the right work is delegated make sure you're compatible and obviously like your story is a little bit different in that you're actually blood related but <laughs> I mean there's still then a process of like okay who's better at what was that always very obvious in the get-go all the hurdles that you you know oh it's just us in the beginning like I don't want to do that you want to do that like how did that sort of negotiation process go or was it just you know easy as well I think for us we've just been working together for so long yeah exactly easy eh um we've just been working together for so long it's sort of been second nature I don't know it's hard to point to a particular moment I think you know some some startups or some founders they'll say you know at one point we just sat down and we laid it out on a piece of paper for us it was much much more organic and it was always just like you know, working on different bits together um, and then figuring out where our strengths lie. Um, and to be honest, I think that actually when you're an early stage startup, both of the co-founders should be doing pretty much everything together. Um, you know, it's so difficult to pigeonhole one of you into one of, or, or, or other. There's just so much work to be done that at times maybe you both need to be focused on one particular area, so building the product. So, I mean, I guess even within that, you have a little bit of a differentiation like you know, Dom was more on the front end, I was more on the back end when we were building the original version of the app. Uh, but then we would always, you know, switch, right? So some days then I would be on the front end. Um, I think it's just important, to be honest, for founders, just like not to take it a too rigid approach to it and like think about all the time, like, okay, this co-founder is the business guy and this one is the technical guy. Um, you know, founded a lot of startups before EZA um, at university as well. I think we tried to set that out in one of the startups that we worked on then it ended up being relatively artificial. Uh, sometimes the technical people are actually really good at marketing, right? And so if you have like a CTO role, it's difficult to say, okay, actually you're a CTO, you only do the tech and listen to me about the marketing, right? If I'm the CMO and if I'm the CEO, I overrule all of you guys, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's more at the end of the day about having like more of a fluid relationship and just figuring things out as you go. Yeah, I think that's kind of contributed to the rise of this role of founder's associate, right? Like is mm -hmm. it somebody who can kind of do everything is interested in like that is the most valuable person to a company really it's yeah someone who can just you can give them a task you they, they get the mission statement they get your why like, and, and they just you know they've soaked in what you do and then they just yeah yeah do it for you essentially but um do you find i mean do you find actually a lot of people uh, i guess within the graduate guy community are interested in that sort of role or I, or looking at it yeah i mean again i think it's an awareness thing like yeah. you, know, you don't get told about a founders associate exactly university. yeah i was gonna say yeah and, you know you don't even get told them at networking events either because yeah. like i feel like you know you're you're, you're so so drilled into you when you, whenever you start a project of business like you've got to pick your niche right like yeah what <laughs> exactly niche? like what if you're actually you can find out your niche by working on something yeah which is kind of the concept right i guess um and, I, and it's how i would as a business from like moving forward i'd like to bring people on the, onto the team in that way where yes they, i've picked them because they're very good at something but like what could they also be good at what would yep. they like to also be good at yeah one thing i found interesting like what you said there and you know maybe it sounds like a, a bit of an obvious or simple question but you you said that there's always so much work to do right yeah. <laughs> and, and, and i find that like an interesting concept when it's you're creating the work for yourself so mm. You know, nobody's setting you these tasks. They're saying you've got to meet this deadline, or whatever. And when you were first starting this project, like, 
nobody, there's no accountability from other companies being like, they, they don't care if you don't do it. Like, they don't care if you don't post that day, whatever. So when you say there's so much words, like, how are you actually setting yourself that work? Like, what does that process look like? It's a good question. I mean, I think actually, you know, there's a really, somebody put this really nicely. I can't remember who exactly said it, um, but basically they said, if you don't know what you're going to do, if, like if you have 10 minutes free, you probably haven't found exactly what you should be working on yet, right? Because when you've really, really found it, that sort of crystal, you know, like we found with ECA, we know exactly what to do. Um, and there's like so much to do. Whereas I think you only ever find yourself with like wondering what tasks you should do if you haven't truly found, not, not necessarily just what you love, but like something that you really should be working on is like a grand vision, right? Because when you have something so big, like, you know, our vision is to reach the next billion developers in Web3. There's so many people, right? There's just like so many things that we need to be doing at any one time. Um, and, you know, if you gave me 10 minutes free, I would have a whole list of things that I need to go through. Um, if you, you know, if I had an hour free, I'd have a different list as well for things that I can do within that period of time. Um, I just think that there's, you know, it's not necessarily like, you know, calculating exactly, um, you know, that there are these tasks that I need to do in the week and, and doing them. Things will come up along the way. Um, it's very, very different, as you said, like to being in a corporate where it's like, you know, for example, when, I'm a, when I was at the law firm, it's like, okay, you need to do this. You have these clients you need to meet. Then you have these, this set of tasks. And when it's done, it's done. And you can sort of go home um, because the task is so gargantuan, right? You just need to do, be doing everything all the time. I mean, probably <laughs> same with you, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I agree, yeah. If you use our relationship and how that has materialized as a case study, that, you know, it doesn't come into my like, oh, I need to meet Peter and then develop this, like, before we'd ever met. Like, that, yeah. that is not something on the workflow, whatever. But how do you sort of, you know, perceive, I guess it's like allowing yourself to be creative and, and going with the wind to some extent, which is an important thing to be as a startup. Where you, you know, something you, you can't be so, like, pigeonholed, as you said, like, to only doing the work yeah. that needs to get done. You need to be open to other people's ideas. Like, do you add that to your working day or is that just something that like ongoing, you spend so much time together that it's just something you chat about throughout the day? We had this relationship all planned out. We knew that we were going <laughs> to be doing this podcast too. Uh, no, but in, in all seriousness, um, yeah, I think that you need to leave yourself a little bit of room sometimes, like not necessarily calculating the whole day in terms of blocking it out. Um, there are some weeks that are like that, right, where it's like literally everything is like back-to-back -back meetings, you know exactly what you have to do, um, as in like not just know what you have to do, as in you actually have to do it then. Um, but I would say that you sort of want to limit the number of weeks where you have to do that, where you're like, you know, 110% overloaded, because it does lead to you missing out on some things, right? So, you know, when we first met, we just were like, okay, yeah, let's go out for lunch, let's meet, right? If we weren't able to do that, if we just like, you know, I've got time for like a, well, no time to meet this week, but next week we could do like a, a 10 minute call. I don't think we would have discussed any of the cool stuff that we discussed or found out about the vision behind what you're building with a graduate guide. Um, and it would just never have happened. So I think it's really important actually not sometimes to be like always at like 110, 150 or even 200 percent. Like sometimes you do just need to take a step back. Um, and not necessarily like, you know, I'm not talking about going on like a retreat or anything like that. I'm just saying like, just to go for lunch, yeah. right? Something small like that. Um, whereas like, I've always been somebody who's like really, really heads down, just like always, always building. Um, I think, you know, having that opportunity to just like, yeah, go for lunch, like, you know, once a couple of weeks or, you know, once a week with somebody new um, has just like been able to open a lot of doors. Yeah. And I think, you know, meeting new people as well is invaluable because you never know who they know. You never know, you know, what they're working on besides their main job. Uh, they might have, you know, a really interesting 
podcast as well um, that you could get involved with. So yeah, I think you know making sure that you meet as many people as possible and then actually you know delve deeper into some of their interests can always be uh, really valuable to whatever you're doing uh, because yeah like you know like you can imagine the title or the role that they have doesn't encompass them necessarily as a person it's the reason like we do so many of these hackathons like we could do them virtually right we could just set a challenge as well and say here submit by this form right and the best technical project wins or the best business idea like it just doesn't have anywhere near the same impact where you've got people in person together making new friends. And like there are even times when I look back and think for the hackathons that I went to, I learned so much from the other people who were around me about working in a team. Um, and you know, even I, I get notifications for the project that we worked on many, many years ago because there are like security advisories on it. Like we need to update packages, but it still like reminds me, you know, pretty much every week that oh, this is you know, this is something I worked on back then. Learned so much about. This was actually machine learning one or AI one, like at the Facebook offices a couple of years ago, and learned so much about you know AI and these different models just at that hackathon that now is relevant today. And so you know Steve Jobs always says like it's impossible to connect the dots looking forward; you can only connect them looking back. And I think that's so true. It's like why you need to have sometimes you know these opportunities for spontaneity as well. Yeah, like collaboration. I think just in general is so important. I mean, uh, I yeah. think yeah, just on that, I guess it, each person works better in different situations. So like some people do are do like being lone wolves and just getting stuff done or whatever. But I think if you feel like you're not working as hard as you could be, then you kinda of have to start questioning if you're allocating your your time into how you're actually working the right way. For me, I I know that I realised from a very young age that I need other people around me. I need to be either teaching someone or being taught by someone to actually digest the information and then go on to do something. Like yeah, it's kinda of like I guess they're like sponge people, right? Yeah. There are some people that yeah. are not like that. Um, let's talk about your education a little bit more. Um, not to be too presumptive, but given that you both had like went to great unis and had a good education, it, one might think that education might have come quite naturally to you, and and like it, it was easy. You know, your your brain was just like, you know, it was easy for you to be good at maths or STEM subjects or anything. Is that true? Like, what was your experience of, of, of Cambridge, for example, actually like? Like, did you find it overwhelming? Because people talk about Oxford being like, you know, very intense. And, you know, some people, you know, you either you live and die by that sort of, right? Mm. Like, it makes you or breaks you. So, how, what was your like, experience at university? Yeah, I mean, definitely very different to Dom's. Uh, US college experience is very different. UK, yeah, I'd say at Cambridge. Uh, I mean, I was just up again. Uh, on Monday evening, we were chatting with a couple of the you know, current undergrads because we do still do a lot um, with my old college, Pembroke. Um, and, you know, chatting with the master as well about the differences that he sees with students. And I think, yeah, I would say the biggest, the best way to describe it is what somebody told me in my first year, which is that it's really hard, but it's manageable, right? And I think that that dichotomy is so so important. A lot of people think, oh, it's really really hard. I'm going to fail or I'm not going to be able to get through it. But it genuinely is manageable. And I think that applies to so many different tasks in life, like no matter how hard it is, most of the things, like very, very few of them are actually going to break you. Very few of them are actually unmanageable. And, you know, again, there's that saying, like, you know, the mind will break a hundred times before the body does. I mean, I'm not saying that, like, studying is that hard, <laughs> but it's like, you know, that sort of concept, right? It's like, you know, it, it's really, really manageable. Um, and I think, to be honest, like, yeah, obviously, you know, I won those scholarships at Cambridge, uh, you know, came top of my year as well. But it was really just like, you know, just having that idea that it's manageable, 
you work hard and you can also have a lot of fun along along the way like but in the US they focus a lot less on the academics or not necessarily less on the academics but just more on the other sides of life as well like yeah I think stuff. the uni US university experience um, is much more well-rounded um, compared to the UK I think you know there's a focus on academics obviously but at the same time there's you know also a focus on meeting other people networking thinking about you know pursuing your passions, um, whatever those may be. So I think that's one of the reasons why I, I chose to go um, to university in the US. And I think there's also a big focus on careers afterwards, uh, both in terms of jobs, but also in terms of startups. I think there's a very big startup culture in the US, which is really cool for a lot of young people who are looking to start their own companies as well. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, in my perspective, I think the US was a really great place to study. Though I've not studied in the US myself, I completely agree that, um, you know, in the UK, it's, it's, it's just not really good enough right now. The, the idea that you go from school where it's all very regimented, you have a structure to literally nothing when you, you go to university. It's like professors don't care if you submit your work and, and they don't really, you know, other than like offering, you know, some career coaching for like your CV. Or Brochure. <laughs> yeah, it's... You, basically everything's left up to you as a student so yeah I think you've got to work with what you've got right I mean and I, my biggest advice to anyone listening who is a student is you know get online and start you know for example if you were interested in anything to do with coding whatever like try and find things like easy try and attend yeah. the hackathons like you have to be proactive with doing that or you you'll just get left behind like, and, and that's the sad truth of it. Um, I mean, I, I, a lot of the um, founders that I have had on this podcast, they, they all have a different relationship with how they see the benefits of starting something from a young age. Like you, you, you guys did start things from a young age. You know, for example, uh, really interesting, Tom just saw it as nothing more than just a head start that he needed. Like he was always someone that had extra time in like exams or whatever and he saw the fact that he started his company when he was 16 as just like having that equivalent of extra time in exams in yeah. a business sense you can try and fail and you know nobody really has any high expectations of you at a young age so yeah what's your relationship and how do you you know, look back on starting at a young age if you me i don't think i ever really thought about it too much in a meta way um i think it just started off even just with stuff at school like you know first business you, you know, looking back is really just like you know was making paper planes and then selling them because I had like a cool way of making them right just in the school parking lot and like in primary school um, and then stuff like that you just learn it and I feel like it was just it just became a habit of just starting stuff and you know making little businesses um, you know making a bit of money here and there seeing like okay you know what if I bought this much paper for a paper plane or well I definitely didn't take it from the art gallery and just <laughs> steal it but um, you know, if I had this amount to start off with, you know, would it, would it add up at the end? Yeah, that's definitely not a confession. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, it just became a habit. Yeah. 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 And, um, well, Dom, for you, I, I guess, uh, I want to hear a little bit more and dive into what, what you were talking about in the US there, that startup culture. If you talk about the failings of the UK, what is it you think that the UK can learn from the US? Yeah, I think, well, number one, it's just the structure and the ability to take time off at university. Um, so I think in the UK, traditionally, it's quite hard to, 
you know, take a year or two out. Um, definitely, I know, you know, at Cambridge, when Phil was there, it was, you know, basically impossible to take um, a year out um, or even take a leave of absence unless for a serious medical reason. So I think, you know, the U.S. does a great job of allowing you to do that which then in turn allows you as a student to really think about, you know, what you want to do business-wise. You can literally take a year out and then come back after a year or two, just put your studies on hold without too many, um, you know, ramifications. Obviously, your friends might be gone in the meantime and have graduated. But other than that, you can come back and just, you know, click play and, and resume where you left off. So I think that's something that could really benefit students in the UK. Um, so it's not such a drastic decision to drop out, so to speak, uh, because you know you can always come back. It's not like you drop out and then you have to say bye to university forever, which I think is the case for a lot of students in the UK. Um, and then I think, you know, just encouraging people to think about doing other things than, you know, go into banking, consulting, law, um, or, you know, potentially becoming a doctor as well. I think, you know, letting people know that there are these other opportunities, inviting speakers. Um, I think that's what the US does really well is inviting alums back to the universities, um, people who have been successful in different fields, not just pure career days, but actually letting entrepreneurs and maybe young ones too come back and share their experiences on their paths. Because ultimately, students at university really just kind of tend to gravitate towards what other people are doing. And if they see these role models who have been successful in the fields of entrepreneurship, startups, etc., um, that's really where they're going to also consider giving their attention to. So I think the UK can really do a bigger job of making those founder success stories much more well-known. And in the meantime, we're doing it. <laughs> we, we together, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting you said there is like uh, your people coming back to, to speak at their university. And, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently where if you can teach someone something, right, chances are you you know it pretty well by that point. Yeah. Or, or it's a it's a really good process of learning by actually yeah. teaching. And that's actually exactly what you know you're doing on a daily basis at these years, like making these Instagram videos, making these yeah. you know little pockets of knowledge. And even though that's actually worked for you and you're doing it for other people, like is that really helping you develop yourself as you know even a, a developer? Yeah, definitely. I'd say you know when I make a video, for example, about a study hack or a productivity hack or a tip. Right? I feel like, obviously, I already know the tip, but it's the way of teaching it, right? A way to distill it into something that people will actually teach. I think that um, there are too many professors who know their topic really well, and they think they're able to teach it, but half of the lecture hall is asleep, sometimes more than half of the lecture hall is asleep, because they're not even turning up, right? Because the lecture is so boring, right? It's like an hour long, they expect you to sit through it, and technically, you're a captive audience. Maybe they've they require you even to turn up, but actually having to make that into something where nobody is actually forced to watch it, right? They're on Instagram or they're on TikTok or they're on YouTube. They're just one swipe away from the next insanely entertaining video. If you can make something that people will watch when they could just be watching like an episode of South Park or I don't know, what's, what's hot right now? It could be like, I don't know, whatever stupid video is on TikTok or, or Instagram Reels or YouTube, if you can make it so that they don't click away, that's a massive achievement. So I'm not necessarily learning about the tip, right? But I'm learning about how to convey it in a way that actually captures people's imagination and at the end of the day, helps them to learn as well. Because then that's what's valuable for the community. And that's what I continue to learn about on a daily basis. Yeah, and on that community, are you finding that you're having to interact with them in a different way on each different platform, whether it's like your own 
platform that you, your app that you speak to them through or you know linkedin to instagram like they all require different attention spans and personalities to you know manage definitely 100 percent. yeah um mainly because i'd say when people are on different platforms they're in a different mindset so if we're interacting with people who are in the easy app live they're really in learning mode right they want to learn and we can be a bit more direct. Um, we can basically tell people more about the technical nitty gritty right up front, like even getting them to code stuff. Um, if it is on TikTok, right, that's totally different. They're not even watching five seconds of the previous video. Like average watch time is probably about seven seconds for a particular video, it might even be lower now. Um, it's very, very different. You need to really have a very, very good hook to get people excited about the video. Whereas on LinkedIn, again, it's different, right? As you all know, people are there because they're looking for new opportunities, they're looking to learn, um, they may be looking to get recruited. And so people are, again, in a different mindset. Um, so I'd say definitely, you know, when you're creating content for different platforms, you got to have that in mind. You can't just put, people say that you can upload the same thing onto all these different platforms. In reality, it's very different just because people are in a different frame of mind when they're on each different platform. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's interesting with your your hook, so to speak, on Instagram is uh, it's something that I feel like as a student, I maybe just missed out on this whole chat GPT era where, I mean, I wish I had it <laughs> earlier, but like you're, it, it's very clever in that if if you're like, you've got students that are scrolling through this, you know, yeah. the stupid TikToks or like, you know, brain numbing content. <laughs> and then it's all of a sudden like a cheap, you know, a, a hack, like a life hack, a cheat sheet yeah. comes up. That's the kind of thing that you would, sort of your brain would exactly. cause to yeah. watch. And then the, what proceeds from there, like you know, whether you use it or not, it's like less important, right? It's that 100%. knowledge that exists. So, yeah. you know, well done for doing that, I guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Thank you. No, it's, yeah, yeah it was, it's very, very true. I think the interesting thing actually for me was, I think a lot of people don't know the story behind TikTok and how it was originally created. Um, obviously like TikTok, um, I'm talking about the original one, which was basically Musical.ly and the idea that the founder had before then. So he basically started it off as an edtech app, right? And also, have you heard of that story where it was like starting off as basically education? I didn't. So it started off as essentially an educational app where people would upload videos um, and get and learn actual content of them. Obviously, he quickly realized that people don't necessarily want to sit through and watch lectures. And so that then became Musical.ly, which was like lip syncing and dancing. Um, and then, you know, got absorbed into TikTok. But it's always made me think like, you know, in some ways, TikTok um, was originally created or what was previously before TikTok was originally created in order to teach people. Um, and I feel like that is exactly the sort of medium that we can still tap into. That people at the end of the day do want to learn and they don't want to feel at the end of like watching TikTok for an hour that they haven't learned anything. So that's why I love the how-tos, the tutorials do really well. Um, even if it's just like makeup tutorials or like, um, you know, how to make whatever, um, you know, and like, you know, cooking tutorials. People just want to learn and it can be satisfying, um, but you've got to make learning fun. And I think, you know, when we think about like TikTok versus learning, obviously I wouldn't categorize TikTok as being anywhere like close to university, but I feel like you can still get a lot if you follow the right people um, as long as you've got the right creators who are, you know, giving you the right information as well. And I think that university could actually take a leaf out of TikTok's book and just be like, make something that people actually want to go to. Like, don't force people to come to lectures. If the lecture's no good, you're not doing a good job as opposed to the students being lazy. Yeah, I mean, I think that story of TikTok is quite interesting because, you know, no, nobody can argue they've obviously done very well in terms yeah. of numbers or whatever. But 
I mean, it, it depends how you perceive your business. If you started off as an ed tech thing, I mean, you became lip syncing. <laughs> like, as a founder, like, personally, I think you'd lose a little bit of credibility to, or like, mm. maybe you've lost your mission to why you were doing it. But he was just going, for, like, how to become the biggest social media platform. Whereas, like, I think you guys, you guys have a clear mission statement and a why for what you're doing, what you're doing. I mean, is there some process of checking like the, the content that you're making is like aligned with the impact you're trying to make? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. So we typically, I guess, look at two metrics. Number one is for every challenge that we release, we track how many people have actually started that course. Um, so if you go into the EZA app, um, which is available on iOS and Android stores, you can basically get straight into learning about pretty much any blockchain you want to learn about. Um, so once people click on that you know, homepage tile to select which blockchain they want to learn about, we track exactly how many people click on that. And then we track as well how many people actually get towards completing all of those challenges within that particular module. So for example, if you want to learn about Solana, you click on the Solana tile, which then gets logged in our backend. And then we also follow the user throughout the whole journey in those individual challenges. So we track completion rates as basically one of the main KPIs in addition to the numbers of people who are actually clicking on those different tiles. Um, so obviously, you know, higher completion rates better. And right now, the completion rate for most of the challenges is 70 plus percent, um, sometimes, you know, even as high as 90 plus percent, which is really good to see, obviously. Um, and, you know, if you compare that with traditional MOOCs or different online courses, it's, you know, multiples higher. So I think that's something that we use just to track basically how we're doing um, relative to other online learning platforms. And because it's all short form, co form content, it's very much like TikTok um, in the sense that you can just literally hop on for a couple of minutes, do some learning, and then hop off uh, on your own time as opposed to you know having to sit through a lecture or a long um, boot camp, for example. Yeah, and uh, I'm curious in that in that case, you say that you know seventy percent or always like finish go go on to finish it, um, and like that's a very validating thing of your products and what you're doing, right? But you know there are different aspects to what you do at EZA and. Like, I guess my question is, in a general scope, like, and how people perceive EZA, what are the most validating things of your product and why you're doing it? Definitely, in terms of outcome, it's when we see somebody come out and basically, very tangibly, we can see what they've learned. So it could be, for example, people who then get recruited. It might just be an internship, it might be a full-time job, and they start working on literally the project that they were then, uh, that they were learning about. So, for example, if it's about a particular blockchain, maybe they started working for the actual blockchain themselves. Um, and we've had people then who also go on to found, found startups, right? So it's like they've come, they've learned, they've learned, and they've learned about all the opportunities available, and then they started like a fintech, for example, uh, a fintech startup. Um, or they've started uh, a Web3 startup, or they've started something that brings together Web3 and AI. Um, that's the most validating thing for us. Like, we can talk as much as we want about, you know, the numbers, and at the end of the day, also, like, the completion rates, What's really, really tangible for us is all of the fact that all of that, it really does add up into something extremely meaningful and just shows that you know, we're on our way to achieving that vision of getting those billion people actually learning about tech. Because still, like, we're obviously still just scratching the surface. And even in the world, like, we're just scratching the surface in terms of people who actually really understand technology. Like, most people you know, just about know how to send like, an Instagram message or a, or a DM or an email. Um, but, you know, as soon as you start getting into anything relatively technical, um, you know, we can just see that there's so, so much room to grow. Do you think, 
everything technical is, is good for society. I mean, it's a bit of an existential question, but like, what obviously you're very heavily involved. Um, but I guess one of the things that you're also educating people on is how to use it in the right way, and and not letting it like become over-consuming or like you know, take away from other learnings that are still important outside of tech. Like, I mean, what do you think about it in general? Yeah, I think you know, obviously, technology as a concept is really important, but I think people don't always need to know why things happen behind the surface. And I think that's something that a lot of companies in the blockchain space currently are, are grappling with right now uh, because they have really advanced technology um, and they really make it known that, you know, we have all this different um, technology available to people. But ultimately, they don't really explain why that technology is actually impacting people and why people should care about it. Um, so I think, you know, what, you know, Apple does really well and what a lot of successful Web2 companies do really well in today's day and age, or just companies in general, is make their products really simple to use. You know, you don't have to know why the iPhone takes such good photos. You just know, okay, it has a great camera, and that's all, you, all that the end user really cares about. Um, and you don't need to know, you know, how does AirDrop work? You just know that you can send photos to someone else. Um, so I think, you know, technology is obviously important, and it really has tangible impacts on everyday uh, lives. But it's not that people need to actually know how that technology works per se. Obviously, in blockchain and Web3, we're educating people on that because it's still so nascent and people still need to build those use cases. Um, but our goal is really to teach people so they can build things that are then easy to use. It's not, you know, we're just teaching people these things because it's cool for them to know. It's so that they can actually go on to found companies. They can go on to actually build long-lasting projects in different ecosystems. You mentioned that, that goal there. Um, because the career space and even you know, the tech space, it, there, there are such big problems within it and there's so many problems that could be solved. There is a temptation, I imagine, that you know, you've done what you've done already, like you know, just in two years so, so well, that you're like, oh, we could probably do the recruitment bit better than everyone else as well. Like we could probably do this. And, but then, you know, I mentioned earlier, like you don't have to pick your niche, but I think in a business sense and not like, you know, scaling too quickly or like, you know, losing what the traffic, why you're doing it, that's important. So, I mean, I get, what's like the sort of five year, I mean, if there is one, you know, five year plan of easy, you say in numbers terms, it's like that a billion people consuming it, but is it, do you think it, it stays as just like purely sort of educational and enabling, or is it like actually like the whole shebang? Yeah, we're definitely focused on the education part. Um, I mean, there's just so much still to do. And we, you know, we're just laser focused on doing this one thing extremely, extremely well. It's how we've been able to become the best at it, um, as opposed to anybody else. Um, and we've just like got this, you know, full funnel all the way, like thinking about the whole, whole user journey. Uh, and, you know, I think that from the startups we've seen succeed as well, it's where actually people become laser focused on one particular thing. And it means that literally nobody else can even like come close because they're focusing on one yeah. single thing. So obviously there's a ton to do. But, you know, as they say, like, it's about the things that you say no to as opposed to the things that you say yes to, um, you know, that really make make a difference. Like, you can't say yes to everything. Um, you know, it's 90% saying no. And, like, the, you know, couple of percent of ideas that you really should do are the ones that, you know, you should just be laser, laser, laser focused on. And to wrap up the episode, there's a, there's a question that I ask all my guests. Um, when you first, you know, graduated from your respective universities, and start easier, you would have a certain idea of what success would look like to you in a career sense. What 
is it now? Like, what is your definition of success? You know, take maybe easy way out of it, but just in general for yourself, what, what does a successful trail look like to you? I'll ask Phil first. Me first. Okay, pressure. Yeah, I would say, to be honest, it's changed a little bit over the years, as you've you know, rightly alluded to, right? When you graduate university, you might think it's one version of success. You know, when you, you know, flash forward to today, it's another version. You know, when you're, and when you're studying at school, like, you know, I remember GCSEs were the definition of success, right? Or A-levels. It's like, if I get these GCSEs, if I get these A-levels, like, my life is, you know, I've completed life, right? And then you get to university, it's like, if I complete these exams, if I get a first, if I come first, I've completed life, right? Um, I think, you know, for now, what I've really realized is that it's about working on something that, you know, as you said, isn't just about numbers, it's about the real tangible impact. And, you know, we're lucky that we found this just amazing niche in a way where we're able to be making such a big impact on people's lives and actually to be able to see that and meet those people in real life, right? Previously, when we've been working on other startups, it's like you see impact, um, but number one, like sometimes you don't get to meet the people in person, like, you know, that's why we have these hackathons. Uh, you know, number two as well, there isn't necessarily a clear progression, right? You mentioned social media. With social media, you have huge numbers, but it's like, is it, can you say that there's a net positive, right? And I think that we're just in this amazing niche where it's very, very clear that it is a net positive, right? It's like, we were chatting with another founder the other day. It's like, you know, he was talking about AI and ChatGPT. Um, you know, is it a net positive? But, you know, for social media, it's like, you know, with TikTok, are we actually better off having TikTok and having the, this entertainment or would we be better off without it? And I think it's actually quite hard to tell. Um, whereas with ETA, you know, my definition, definition of success is really just, you know, are we having an impact? Are we changing things? And are we actually a net positive in the world? Are we going to leave it at the end of, you know, not just beyond 10 years, but at the end of our lifetimes, are we going to leave the world in a better place to how we originally started? And for me, like, you know, when I wake up every day and I see what we're doing, it's very, very clear that that's the case. And we're on the journey to just increasing that impact even more. Yeah, I think, you know, building on that, really, it's, it's about being remembered. Um, so I think, you know, if people can really point to, you know, someone and say, okay, that person was, you know, the best um, scientist, you know, they found the cure for AIDS, for example, then obviously that person is hugely successful. If someone is, you know, the best surfer in the world, then you know, that person's obviously successful. So I think, you know, if you can be remembered in a certain field for doing something, um, then you are by definition successful because it means you've achieved the goal that you set out to do uh, because, you know, you don't become the best at anything without a tremendous amount of work behind it. Um, so I think for us, you know, it's, it's about being remembered um, or even being known, rather, if you're still alive, um, as the people who brought people into Web3. Um, and so, you know, just as uh, Tim Berners-Lee created the internet, brought everyone into the, you know, Web 1 or Web 2 space, we want to be the people who have been known to bring everyone into the Web 3 space um, and into blockchain as a sort of, you know, creating that gateway um, and that on-ramp. So I think, yeah, really, you know, success boils down to being um, known for something and actually being remembered for doing one particular thing. Love it. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you very Thank you, much, Peter. Peter.